to Avi's Conversational Corner, a podcast on history, culture, and politics in a broad perspective. I am your host, Avi Wolf. It was a time of rapid, terrifying, and exhilarating change, a time of scientific breakthroughs, mass politics, endless scandals, and efforts at reform, a time when new groups of Americans fought for and sometimes won their rights to participate fully in American life, while others did their best to try and keep America as it was or as they imagined it to be. With few heroes, many villains, great geniuses, and piercing questions, many of which still trouble us today. Welcome to Stumbling Colossus, a regular part of Avi's Conversational Corner, covering the gilded and progressive ages of the United States, from the end of the Civil War to the end of the First World War. You can find this and other episodes of Avi's Conversational Corner at Google Podcasts and on Amazon Music. This episode's topic, A More Moral Nation. The era after the Civil War was a time in which Americans sought to fundamentally transform their country, developing its industry, expanding the frontier, growing its cities and population, and securing rights for women and black American citizens. Included among these was a growing group of Christian leaders and citizens groups who watched with increasing alarm at the increasing moral disorder of the country, first during the war and then in the Gilded Age. They sought to impose an increasingly expansive federal enforcement of morality, from censorship of the male and entertainment, to putting the Christian God in the Constitution and federally regulating marriage and divorce, to banning alcohol and lotteries anywhere in the country. So, who were these crusaders? Where did they come from? And why did they engage in such a revolutionary sweeping endeavor? Here with me to answer at least some of these questions is Professor Gaines Foster of Louisiana State University. Gaines. Welcome. Thank you, Avi. It's nice to be with you. So let's start with the question I ask all my, uh, almost all my guests uh, in this series. Let us imagine that, I guess, uh, a, a fire-breathing uh, evangelical uh, preacher or a, or a conservative uh, Catholic, or maybe not a Catholic leader, comes to visit the United States um, at the beginning of our period in 1866, mm-hmm. in the middle, around the 1890s, and toward the end, to, uh, to inquire into the, I guess, what he would consider the moral and religious and spiritual state of the nation and the laws in place in order to ensure that spiritual health. What would they find? What would have changed? What would have stayed the same? Well, I think they would have been deeply troubled when they came in the 1860s. The Civil War had, in many people's minds, led to changes in consumption of alcohol and other uh, pornography and other immoral behavior. Uh, And not just the war, but a changing American society with the rise of, of the problems you mentioned in your introductions, urbanization and other problems left, I think, a a lot of Americans worried about a sort of moral crisis in America. If they had come back in the 1890s and they had found, as I think they would have, the moral reformers that I've studied, I think they would have seen some progress and some hopefulness toward creating a more moral America in part by using government power to do that. If they then came back in 1920, 
I think they would have been ecstatic by over the experiment of prohibition, which is really the, the single greatest triumph and change that the moral reformers brought about. But I think if they had stopped to think about what had happened over the last 30 years, they would have been a little disappointed because the moral reformers had not succeeded in their broad agenda of moral reform. They had not really created a sort of moral police power at the federal level that they hoped to have done. And most certainly, if they were seeking a sort of formal Christian nationalism, they would have been very disappointed that all attempts to write Christ and God into the Constitution had failed and that only symbolic statements of America being a Christian nation had been adopted. So I think they would have, by the end, had a very mixed response. Okay. So having gotten that introduction out of the way, uh, let's look into uh, a bit into the uh, personal background of the moral lobbyists and the people who supported them. Um, America, in the, especially in the Gilded Ages, was a time in which class was becoming a much more powerfully defining feature of American life, uh, with increasing uh, differences between rich and poor, between uh, working and middle classes. Who are the kinds of people who worked as uh, moral lobbyists? Who were the kinds of people who supported them? Uh, did they come from a particular region? Did they go to particular schools? Did they live in particular places? Or was it uh, much more heterogeneous? Well, I think the support may have been uh, a little more heterogeneous. And one of the uh, major arguments in, in moral reconstruction is how that support changes over time. But let me start with the, the real focus of your question, which is the moral reformers. They tended to come from the middle class. They weren't particularly elite in any way, shape, or form. Uh, they often came from an evangelical background. Their denominations varied. Um, some were Methodists, some Baptists, some Presbyterians. I don't think there's a consistency there. But they do have a sort of evangelical view of the necessity of moral behavior. And for the most part, they define moral behavior in terms of personal morality, not a social morality. Uh, you raise the issue of class, which I think is a very fascinating aspect of these moral reformers' motivations. You can, again, they were mostly middle class, uh, and you can read their writings and interactions with each other. And you see what is so often the way historians portray moral and other reformers, that there is a fear of the working class. There is a fear of the growing immigrant population. And clearly part of what they want to use moral legislation and regulation to do is to control those people. But I don't see them as motivated primarily by class. In other words, I think it's very important to take these people's moral and religious views very seriously, and I think that's what drove them. Plus, if you listen to their rhetoric, they talk over and over again of protecting our boys, 
there's a gender dimension. They're clearly fearful that this new society that's emerging in late 19th century America threatens male behavior even more than it does female behavior. But our boys suggest they're worried about their own children and the children of their own class. And so I think they're really worried about a moral crisis that violates their religious beliefs. Uh, it clearly has a class dimension to it. It clearly has an anti-immigrant dimension to it. But it's much more than that. So taking them very seriously, and I agree with you, people who make these arguments and they make them consistently, uh, we should take them seriously. Uh, we should take them at their word that they genuinely believe what they were saying. But as you note in your book, Moral Reconstruction, um, in the pre-Civil War era, um, there was much more of a focus on moral persuasion, on moral convincing, on public campaigns, on people taking oaths, as Alexis de Tocqueville uh, used to point out. Why, why this, why the sudden lack of faith in the, that method of approaching and convincing and even, dare I say, evangelizing, uh, why the lack of faith in this working now? Yes, that's an excellent point. It really is a shift by these, um, reformers to use the power of the state rather than to count on individual moral suasion to change moral behavior. And I, I think it has several roots. One is the, just in their minds, the sheer magnitude of the problem. America had experienced the Civil War. They felt like the war had brought a tremendous disruption to society and interrupted uh, moral reform, but also moral, changed moral behavior. They see the cities as, as a dangerous place they, again, see the immigrants, the lower class. They're worried, as they never were before, about African Americans because they're free, and, and that frightens them. So I think it's, it's mainly the magnitude of the problem that leads them to say, okay, moral suasion hasn't worked. Uh, I can't remember anybody that I studied exactly saying this, but I also think you know, even before the Civil War, with prohibition, some states had tried to use the power of government when they began to believe moral suasion shouldn't, wouldn't work. And so I, I think part of it, too, is that they're not convinced they're going to be able to do this purely through individual conversion. But that doesn't stop. I mean, you still have, at the same time, you have these moral reformers seeking legislation. You also, in the late 19th century, as you know, have a tremendous outburst of urban revivalism, which is, again, using the same sort of moral suasion, individual conversion to lead to a sanctification that changes moral behavior. So I don't think for most of these people it was exactly an either-or choice. It was a both-and approach. So taking that into account and taking into account uh, the fact that they decided that they needed the force of law, uh, one of the things that stands out when reading uh, your book is how much they focused on the federal government. But at least in this period and really until the New Deal, the federal government's power was quite weak. It didn't really employ a lot of people to enforce its laws. Um, Congress tended to be very wary of giving the federal government much more power. And even the biggest 
uh, most comprehensive effort uh, to enforce federal law, i.e. Reconstruction, basically failed. Uh, while uh, while the main efforts, for instance, of the progressive movement was not on the federal government using its power, but on the states and local authorities, which had real police power and which had much uh, closer attention to the ground. So why focus so much on what feels like a symbolic effort and symbolic victories rather than campaign much harder to get laws with real teeth uh, in states and localities? Well, I, I think they would have supported and did support laws at the state level, but they very much see this as a national problem that demands national solutions. And you're absolutely right that the nation state was seen as weak, but one of the important arguments I'm trying to make in moral reconstruction is that this movement was part of state formation. This was movement was part of an attempt to use the power of the federal government in new ways. And, and I, I, I believe they thought that was uh, a great way to do that, uh, and an important way to do that, because in an interdependent society that America was becoming in the late 19th century, there was no other way to really enforce moral behavior. A, a, a classic example of that would be the moves for divorce law. And part of what generated that demand for a national divorce law, which they never got, was the fact that people could leave the East and go to the West to the territories and get a quick divorce. And they did succeed in limiting divorce in the territories. So I think the, both the magnitude of the problem and, and an increasing appreciation, which also drove other forms of reform in this period, of the interdependent nature of America in this vastly changing society um, helped drive them toward using national power. And again, I think one of the important stories of moral reform is, is its part in the creation of a more powerful nation state. Uh, several books that have come out since mine have stressed how much national prohibition represented one of the most dramatic expansions of federal power uh, that occurred before the New Deal and, and shaped the federal government. And so the, the moral reform crusade is in many ways a, a, a deeply important part of the formation of the nation state and a more powerful central government. Okay. Uh, one of the things you note uh, in this great movement uh, to reform and change things nationally is that there was a something of a regional shift in terms of support for all these efforts it originally started with a lot more support with say in the northeast uh, new england uh, the old Whigs, uh, the midwest and slowly but surely uh, petitions from those regions at least not not the midwest but like new england started to drop off and you have many, many, many more uh, petitions from the South and the West, which, as you note, is interesting because traditionally, certainly the South tended for various reasons not to be in favor of federal morals legislation in any way, shape or form. And all of a sudden they're becoming supportive while uh, in the traditional areas, it starts to drop off. Now, I asked this question 
uh, of some uh, historians uh, on Twitter, and some of them suggested that the dropping off might have been because of immigration, right? You have people immigrating in, uh, Catholics, uh, Jews, uh, other people who aren't necessarily for moral legislation. But the Midwest also had an enormous amount of, legi- uh, amount of immigration, and they continued to be just as robust. So what explains this dropping off? Well, I'm, I appreciate you picking up that theme in, in moral reconstruction because I think it's very important. The, the changing role of the South, I think, is, is so central and so fascinating in this whole process. Uh, the white South had opposed moral legislation vehemently before the Civil War because they feared that if you gave the federal government power to enforce morality, it could be turned against slavery and undermine their system of enslavement. And they were determined to prevent that from happening. Once the war is over and slavery had ended, white Southerners are still primarily afraid of federal power because of its possibility of using it, the possibility of using it to intervene in Southern race relations. So as that fear declines in the 80s, and particularly in the 90s, with the court's embrace of the legality or the constitutionality of segregation, with particularly the Republican Party's loss of interest in enforcing voting rights for blacks in the South that the failure of the Lodge Bill in 1890 symbolized. As that happens, as the South is no longer worried about that, then the the overwhelmingly evangelical culture and the emphasis on creating a social hierarchy based on personal morality creates a situation in which the South is going to be much more enthusiastic about legislating morality. And there is a dramatic shift uh, by the late 90s and into the early 20th century so that, for instance, with prohibition, the South will be, along with the West, um, the leading section uh, calling for moral reform. So that's a really fundamental change. And what it points to, I think, and a lot of people ignore, is how significantly the South changed after the Civil War, how much it accepted uh, a new conception of the nation after the Civil War. I think the Midwest is is harder to explain, though I, I do think though you have immigration into the Midwest, you also have uh, a persistence of a rural culture in the Midwest uh, that is very different from you know the Midwestern cities and very much tied to the same kind of Protestant nationalism that you have in the South. And, and I think that explains that. I mean, the, the really fascinating thing about this that I hadn't really thought about until recently because I was working on it in a different way is, again, the, the regional split you so accurately explained in your question really sounds a great deal like the regional split in America today, and you see the origins of that split here as well. Speaking of splits, uh, let's talk a bit about uh, religious splits. Uh, You mentioned how uh, the biggest supporters uh, for these moral uh, uh, reforms and, uh, and legislation tended to come from the broad 
evangelical or Protestant uh, traditions. Um, but this was an era in which there were new groups of people, new groups, uh, new religious groups that were immigrating or forming or becoming stronger uh, in the United States, uh, specifically uh, the Black Protestant Church, uh, which uh, lived a, a segregated and separate existence. Um, and things like uh, Catholic Americans, uh, Jewish Americans, uh, German Lutherans who were not very big on prohibition. How did they react to uh, these efforts? Were they kind of it? Were, were they selectively in favor? Were they four square against? Were they four square in favor? I would say generally, and it, it varies, they certainly are not part of the coalition that is pushing for these changes. And I think they were more deeply suspicious, particularly Catholics for whom, and even, and even American Jews as well, for whom there was still a great deal of anti-Catholicism and oftentimes attempts to sort of enshrine Protestant values were seen as anti-Catholic. By the time of prohibition, there's much more ambivalence. You have some Catholic prohibition, uh, supporters of prohibition and others who don't. Uh, and so prohibition becomes a more uh, nuanced division than the other things. Uh, but for instance, I, I write a lot about the National Reform Association, which was rooted in Presbyterian denominations with the heritage of the Scottish Reformation. And they were, they were vehemently anti-Catholic. And so again, there's, there are tensions between these groups that makes a coalition in which on some of the moral issues they would have agreed uh, substantially more difficult. Which brings us to, uh, I guess, the coda of our period. Prohibition has passed. Uh, all the, much of the legislation, even though not all of the legislation, uh, that um, Christian moral reformers tried to pass have been enacted and are often quite strongly enforced, although not universally. And yet the 1920s at least is popularly understood to have witnessed just an enormous cultural backlash to all of this, including the celebration of breaking the law, the celebration of breaking uh, standard moral norms, uh, almost an in-your-face approach to the entire effort that had gone before it. Given all that, how did those who were still alive, how did the reformers who witnessed this uh, react? Was it, we need to try harder? Or did some of them perhaps think, you know, maybe we pushed things a little bit too far. Maybe we needed to be a little bit less sweeping. Well, well let me back up a little bit and disagree with you just a little bit. And that is, I don't think the moral reformers got nearly the amount of reform legislation that they wanted. And they rarely got a sort of assertion of a moral police power by the federal government. So, so there, were, there were major victories, uh, particularly against uh, interstate transportation, for instance, or in the territories, or in the District of Columbia. But some of the major things they were pushing for in the 80s, a national divorce law, a national Sabbath, uh, Sabbath legislation, 
they never got those things. And, and so they didn't get a lot of what they wanted, and they particularly didn't get an assertion of the federal government's basing its morality on the authority of God and Scripture. In other words, the Christian amendment I, that so many of them push never passes. So in some respects, I think what they've ended up having to do, sun, the Sunday laws are a good example of this. They don't say pass a Sunday law because God says to do it. They say pass a Sunday law because the majority of Americans favor it, which doesn't establish that moral authority that they so desperately wanted to establish, but rather leaves the definition of morality to some extent in the hands of the majority of Americans. And that is what you see playing out, I think, in the 1920s. For instance, uh, the fight over evolution also often became a fight over do the Bible-believing majority have the right to do this. Um, I would argue that most of the reformers I write about have died or passed from the scene by the 1920s and didn't see what happened. Uh, there's a second generation that I do talk about, but I see it's very different, and that's the, the Anti-Saloon League, and they clearly were very frustrated with um, the failure to enforce prohibition and the increasing unhappiness with prohibition. Though, again, there were a lot of rural areas in America that continued to see prohibition as a, as a, a, a very successful experiment. And there's actually some scholarship that can point to things like dramatic drops in the overall consumption of alcohol and mental illness-related alcohol that suggested prohibition may work better than it did. But again, in, in the 20s, this sort of moral relativism that becomes formalized has been, you know, I think my, my moral reformers to some extent saw it coming, but I also think they almost encouraged it with the way they had to defend their legislation. When they go to Congress and they say, you have to vote for this because most Americans agree with us, not because God says it, then you're opening the whole question of defining morality by society, not by God, which is what they were most afraid of. So again, I think for most of them, it's, it's, it was probably for the best that they had passed from the scene before they saw what happened in America after 1920. Entirely fair enough. Um, and I highly recommend uh, that people read Moral Reconstruction. It is a very interesting look into an often overlooked uh, part of this period with a, opening a lot of questions, which uh, still, like I say, it's still troublous to this day. Professor Foster, thank you very much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. It's been nice to talk to you, and I appreciate your kind words about moral reconstruction. I appreciate that a lot.